Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending where you're joining us from, and welcome to another episode of Leaders Live, coming to you from IMG Studios here at Stockley Park. I'm James Emmett, and with me is Leaders Managing Director, Laura McQueen. Thank you, James, and hello, everyone. Great to be here in the IMG Studios for the first time, coming to you live on LinkedIn and Twitter, or on demand via your chosen podcast platform. Get those questions coming in via LinkedIn especially, um, and we'll do our best to put them to our guests. I'm going to be here for the top half of the show for our big interview today with Sally Monday. Uh, later on, after our EDI spotlight, I'll be subbing out for regular Cameron McDonald. Yep, you're doing half a job today, Laura. Um, today's topic amongst economic uncertainty in all sectors. Where can the sports industry look for best practice in being agile, inventive and weathering challenges in funding? We'll be speaking shortly with Beth Barrett-Wild, Director of the Women's Professional Game at the ECB, and Joe Osborne, Head of Women's Sport at Sky Sports, to hear their thoughts on navigating the economic headwinds. But to set the scene and start us off today, we're joined by Sally Monday, the Chief Executive of UK Sport, and as such, one of the most powerful women and indeed people in sport in this country and arguably in the world. Sally, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Um, so Sally, it's Thursday the 13th of April. We're just over a year out from the Olympics and Paralympics. What's on your mind right now? What's on the to-do list? Well, firstly, wow, exciting. <laughs> we're just over a year away from the Games, as you said. Um, we're really excited because obviously it's the first time since the London Games in 2012 that we've had a, a Games back in Europe on, you know, so close to home but also on sort of um, European time. So brilliant opportunity for British fans to, to go and, and see Olympic and Paralympic sport live as well as, as watch it on TV. So we're, we're really excited uh, about the Games. And I think probably what's on, on my mind at the moment, what's on our minds is about making sure that we use every moment, every chance that we've got between now and Games time to make sure that the British and Northern Irish team that go are the, are the best prepared and that we give them the best possible chance of of achieving their dreams of becoming Olympic and Paralympic champions. Awesome. Just a, just a small task then. Um, what I'm really interested in is, is what's keeping you awake at night. Like what are the major sort of potential amber reg flags, things that you, you know you're going to have to overcome before next year? Well, what we know about Olympic and Paralympic Games is that quite often we get things that get thrown us at, at, at left field. And um, if you just think back to the, to the last Games, we weren't obviously expecting to have a postponed games. What I'm very lucky about in the role that I do is that I'm surrounded by really brilliant people. And I'm also very lucky that um, I, I generally tend not to be kept awake at night. I, I don't tend to dwell on things. Um, I'm, I'm a real believer that you do everything that you can do to try and do the best job that you can do. And uh, as long as you act with integrity and you, you do things to the best of your ability, you can only control what, what you can control. That sounds a bit sort of bland when you really want to know kind of like what I'm, what I'm worrying about. Um, there's obviously a lot of things going on in, in, in Olympic and Paralympic sport at the moment. There's, you know, the, the big discussion that's very public about Russia and, and Ukraine uh, and, and the, whether Russian and Belarusian athletes will be, be allowed to compete or not. So that's something we're keeping a, a really close eye on. But mostly what, what is, is we're focused on is, is what I said at the beginning, just trying to make sure that we're able to support all of the Olympic and Paralympic sports, the British Olympic, Olympic Association and the British Paralympic Association to make sure that we've done everything possible to make sure that our athletes go in the best prepared. It's something that we have historically been very good at and it's what we're really focused on in this next period leading in, into Paris. Sally, we had um, Simon Massey-Taylor on last month and I asked him this question and I'll tell you what he responded <coughs> after I've asked it to you, I think. I might make a habit of it, but um, I want you to put your teacher's hat on and to look at your own work if uh, that makes sense. You've been in the job for almost four years. Could you grade your own work, both in terms of effort and application, please? Gosh, um, well, I won't share with you my school reports sure. uh, on, on <laughs> sure. effort and attainment. This is the show and tell section. Um, effort. Uh, so if I was judging myself, I, I, I would definitely give myself a 10 out of 10 for effort. Mm -hmm. um, getting to do this job is a, is, is a gift. 
I remember um, uh, Liz Nichol, who I took over from when she departed, she talked about it being, you know, the, the best job in the world. It, it, I mean, it is an absolute privilege. I know it sounds like a cliche, but it's an absolute privilege to do this job. Um, and so you've, you've got to be willing to, to, to put in that 100% effort. So I'd, I'd give myself a 10, a 10, a 10 out of 10 on, on effort. It's bold, but yeah. Um, uh, and on attainment, uh, I'd probably go an eight. Okay. I think for the most part, I'm pretty satisfied with what I've done since I've been in post, um, how I've led the team through some of the challenges that we've had and the opportunities that have been presented to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, f- I feel pretty satisfied, but I also, being in the world that I'm in, always know that there's more to do and there's more that we could do, more that we can do. So, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely room for room for further growth. Okay, 10 for effort, 8 for application. Um, Simon used a different system, you know, his pounds and ounces. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think he, g- he gave himself a B plus, I think. Oh, did he? Or, uh, similar, I think. Uh, that translates yeah. to an 8, I would say. Um, let's take a step back, I think, uh, and think about strategy, which is a, a, a hugely important part of your role, I guess, setting the strategy and then executing it. And the question is just very simply, what does strategy mean for UK sport? So uh, I'm really blessed at UK sport. We've got a really incredible board of directors who I work with and uh, myself and the executive team work with them to set the strategy. And we've got a long-term strategy at UK sport um, that runs through to 2032. And we very deliberately have a long-term strategy because actually, if you think about the world that we're in, to become the very best in the world at something, which is what our Olympic and Paralympic athletes are trying to do, requires a, a, a pretty long period of time. So we're always looking at, uh, at what the long-term future is. For us at UK Sport, what we're, we're out to do, our mission is about creating the greatest decade of extraordinary sporting moments. Mm-hmm. Um, and for us, that's uh, partly about the moments when somebody crosses the, the finish line. It's partly when the winning goal goes in. It's those extraordinary moments. But it's also a whole range of other extraordinary moments that Olympic and Paralympic sport create. Uh, it's the moment when uh, an athlete goes into a school and shows a kid an Olympic medal and they look down at it and their face lights up, you know, like a kid having a Willy Wonka chocolate factory mm-hmm. golden ticket. Yeah. Um, it's those moments. It's the moments when we saw the Brownlee brothers and one of them helping the other to get across the line. That wasn't a winning moment, but it was a, an incredible sporting moment. And these moments we know unite our nation. Mm. Um, it makes the British people feel incredibly proud. Uh, and our mission is about creating the decade of the, the greatest decade of extraordinary sporting mm. moments. That's what we're setting out to do. I still get quite excited by the gold post boxes, to be honest. Yeah, we've got yeah. one of those. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was uh, funnily enough, I was out and about the weekend before last, and I was in Marlow, uh-huh. and there's a number of golden post box <laughs> around weird. there because there's uh, quite a lot of uh, Olympians that have trained at Bisham Abbey. Okay. So there's quite a few uh, golden post boxes, but yeah, I, I like them too. Yeah. There's um, there's one down the road from me. Mo Farah's one, actually. Oh, good um, one. It's good good one to have close by. Um, I, well, you're talking about strategy, and obviously, you have, as you say, you have a long-term strategy at UK Sport, which makes complete sense. I mean, in any business nowadays, it's, it's pretty hard to have a long-term strategy which stays relevant um, yeah. throughout that period of time. So I was interested in, you know, what's your approach with you know, having a long-term strategy that you stick to and that you remain ambitious about, while also adapting and recognising that we're living in an incredible time where there's a huge amount of change, whether that's economical, political, pandemic... How do you balance that, the short-term flexibility and the long-term strategy? Yeah, well, my thoughts uh, about strategy is that quite often you see organisations spend an awful lot of time creating a strategy and then it can sit on a shelf. In in my view, a strategy in itself needs to be agile and the organisation needs to be agile in responding to its external circumstances um, and, and how a strategy will change. So we launched our strategy sort of just over two years ago the world is is quite a different place from from where it was two years ago. And we have a responsibility, I have a responsibility as a leader to make Mm. sure that we respond and that we're agile. The the interesting thing for us at UK Sport is that our our mission about creating the the greatest decade of extraordinary moments is 
is actually underpinned by sort of three ambitions around um, winning and winning well, around developing our thriving sporting system, uh, and also about uh, creating sort of um, moments that have a huge impact. Mm. And I think that um, whatever is going on in terms of the changes to your external world, if you can stay true to your mission and you can stay true to your ambitions and, and your values of, of what it is you're trying to do, the agility comes in what you're delivering and how you're delivering it to, to create those things. And like I said, I'm really lucky with my with my board and the, and the people that I work with, that everybody gets that. They get that, mm. yes, we've got a long-term strategy and we've got big ambitions of what we're trying to do, but that we have to respond to the world that is around us. That's interesting. And, and, and seeing as I've got you and I can take some free advice, um, what does that practically <clears> look like? So how, you, you set your strategy, you've got a board. What's the practical way in which you work sort of month to month, year to year to yep. actually make that a reality and, and, and as you say, have an adaptable way of working within it? So I'm quite a simple person um, and I believe in kind of a, applying s sort of simplicity to what you're doing. So yeah. you have a 10-year strategy and from that we develop um, uh, ambition over a four-year quad, an Olympic and Paralympic quad, and then we'll have an annual operating plan. And the annual operating plan, what that allows us to do is to apply the finances that we mm. have for that year of, of how we're going to decide how our resources are allocated in the people that we employ, um, in the activities and the programs that, that we do. And then the annual operating plan simply translates into people's objectives. Right. And it's kind of as simple as that, that you cascade it down the business. And so everybody in the business should know how what they're doing is contributing to the annual operating plan, which is delivering the strategic intent. Nice. Um, do keep those questions coming in on LinkedIn, um, especially where I've got LinkedIn uh, open in front of me. We've got a few already, and um, I'm intending to mix one in shortly. Laura has a question about difficult conversations, and then there is a perfect follow-up here around Russia, uh, <laughs> just to tee everybody up, but Laura. Um, so what, one of the things I, that strikes me in, in your role is you, it's, it's in, it could be intense, you know, the, the, the amount of media um, conversation around some of the big challenging topics that you need to address from a UK sport perspective. How do you personally go about having those difficult conversations, managing that best you can, both externally, but also, you know, behind closed doors? I think my general approach with everything is about being honest mm. and being as open as you can be. I'm a really big believer in the importance of integrity and integrity means different things to different people. If, if I asked, all, you know, if all three of us gave our definition of integrity, we'd all probably have slightly different definitions. Um, but for me, integrity is about having the courage to do what's right. And I think if you have the courage to do what's right, facing into difficult topics or difficult conversations. I think if you're able to be honest and open about what you think, about what your views are, um, and share as much as you can. And so the, the challenging thing sometimes is that there's things that you can't always share. There's things that you can't always say. But I think it's then being, you know, again, honest and saying, look, I can tell you this. There's other things I probably can't say right now. And, whether, and, whether, and that applies to whether you're managing an individual that's mm. in, in a conversation or whether you're, for us, managing sports who are disappointed maybe at the level of investment that they've got or whether you're having conversation with the media. I, I think just kind of being honest, mm -hmm. being open. I think also my personality is such I kind of wear my heart on my sleeve a little bit. So I think you generally know it's very easy to spot when I'm, I'm kind of not being <laughs> honest. So, uh, yeah, that philosophy has kind of served me reasonably well. That might be about to change my mind, depending on well, the question. Let's see. So we've got a question here from uh, Jose Marcel Duardo, um, who works at the Canberra Institute of Technology. And it's picking up on something you said earlier about one of the, you know, the hot topics that, uh, you know, is on your to-do list at the moment. It's around Russian and Belarusian athletes at the Olympics. You know, it's a big Olympic question. And, the, well, here's, here's Jose's question. How much of an emotional impact uh, would it have on Russian power? Olympic athletes if they're not allowed to compete, knowing already that they've had to overcome all their disability barriers to become top athletes. Don't want you necessarily to directly uh, respond to that. But w what's your sort of current position in this debate that's going on at the moment? How are you treating UK sports kind of position? So th the main thing we're doing is watching really, really closely uh, what the International Olympic and International Paralympic Committees are, are saying and doing, mm. and then really importantly, how the international federations who govern each of the, the sports are, are responding. 
And from our perspective, we're closely looking at that as well as having very frequent dialogue with our own ministers about what the UK position is. I think it's it's really tricky. I think it's really challenging. And ultimately, you don't want, um, none of us want sport and international sport and the Olympic and Paralympic Games to be affected by politics. But I think there's a naivety if we think that it's not. So I think our role is to just very closely watch what's going on and then support our sports and the British Olympic and Paralympics associations to respond to rules and decisions that will be made that will be made beyond them. Mm-hmm. A sensible approach. Um, we go back to strategy, I guess, and sort of overall philosophy. You've talked before about this concept of winning, but winning well. And I wondered whether you could articulate what precisely you mean by that. And maybe are we doing that across UK sport? Are we currently winning well? So at its heart, winning well is about winning with integrity. It's about doing the right thing. We know that it's possible to win without winning well. We've seen that in sports. But we're very clear at UK Sport that winning without winning well doesn't hold value for us. Um, It doesn't hold value for the Olympic and Paralympic movements. We want to win with integrity. We want to do it right. Mm -hmm. And winning is so much sweeter, I think, when you know that you have have done it right. And I, I truly believe that the vast majority of people in Olympic and Paralympic sport are doing the right thing mm-hmm. and are winning with integrity. We're very open about the fact that we want to keep winning. Mm-hmm. We're the high performance agency for, for Olympic and Paralympic sport in, in this country. We know that the British people love Olympic and Paralympic sport. Uh, you've probably seen this morning that I think um, outside of, of the French, the Brits have bought the most tickets for, for Paris so far. No big surprise to us. We know how important Olympic and Paralympic sport is. It's the favourite team of, uh, of the British public. But what we also know is that the British public um, want us to do it right. They want us to do it with integrity. Mm-hmm. And what we do and the sports that we work with, everybody is focused on making sure that we do win well. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got time for two or three more, and I wanted to throw this one in. It's another one um, from LinkedIn. Do keep those questions coming in. This one's from Paul Morgan, long-term communications director at Premiership Rugby. Um, Paul says, women's sport is flying on the pitch, but I'd like to ask Sally about how important it is for major stadiums to make the step up and truly be women or family friendly. And I'd like to ask her which stadium she has found to be the most woman or family friendly. Who's doing a great job? Oh, gosh. Uh, Well, I think it's really important that um, I think what we've seen over the last couple of years is that there is a massive appetite for for watching and following women's sport. Um, I think it's just suddenly exploded. Um, But it suddenly exploded off probably a good couple of decades of an awful lot of people doing an awful lot of things quietly to make this happen. So, yes, there's lots of sports and people in the spotlight now reaping the reward of women's sports suddenly being so much more heralded and followed and wanted, but it's come after decades of people trying to to promote it. So for all your audience and listeners out there who are those people who have been fighting this cause for a long period, make sure that you can sit there and take some some, some credit for what, what we're currently seeing. I think probably my most favourite recent moment from a stadium point of view has to be Wembley last year. Mm-hmm. I was very, very lucky to to be um, at Wembley when the when the Lionesses won. But I was also in the London Stadium when I worked at hockey and the women's hockey team won bronze, their first Olympic medal in 20 years. And then I was in Rio when they won gold. Mm-hmm. So there's been some pretty special places that I've experienced extraordinary sporting moments. Mm-hmm. I'm going to throw out there the hundred as well because we've got Beth Barrett Wild later, yeah. and I do. I think that's an exceptional experience. Yeah, um, uh, Edgebaston. Um, yeah. Uh, I thought it was, I went to Edgebaston for just mm. brilliant, absolutely fantastic. Yeah, very right. efficient at uh, beer pouring at Edgebaston. As oh, well. is that right? Yeah. <laughs> very important. That's, that's good that's, to know. That is yeah, that's yeah. very good to know. What one question I have for you, and, and I guess sort of um, pivoting slightly to you as a leader, and um, you often get lauded as sort of one of the most powerful women, specifically women in sport. Um, how does how does that make you feel? Do you do you like that? Loathe that? What what's the what does that mean to you to be a powerful woman in sport? Uh, gosh, so I don't really see myself that way. Um, I see myself having a, a role that has incredible responsibility 
an ex- incredible sort of opportunity. You know, we distribute over half a billion pounds worth of money to Olympic and Paralympic sports. Mm. Th- th- that comes with a big sense of responsibility about making good decisions. This is about people's lives, people's dreams. This is about enabling athletes to achieve their ambition and dream of becoming an Olympic or Paralympic champion. So I take the responsibility quite seriously and I don't, I tend to kind of link the whole sort of powerful thing as kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. On the women's side, um, I'm, I'm kind of a bit bored of it, if I'm honest. Um, <laughs> I thought that might be the um, answer. That's it, how I was it's just kind of like, I, I don't want to be given a job or invited to something because I'm a woman. Mm. I want, I, you know, going back to the question you asked me about how would you rate yourself? I don't rate myself as a woman doing the job I'm doing. I rate myself as a CEO doing the job I'm doing. And I want to be known as a, as a good CEO, as a good leader, not as a good woman leader. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Time for one more, if it's okay. And you mentioned the sort of rating yourself, grading yourself. And uh, to remind everyone, you graded yourself as an eight for attainment earlier. Ahead of the next parents' evening, whenever that might be, how are you going to bump that grade up? I think that we've got a fantastic opportunity for Olympic and Paralympic sport in the next 18 months. A a games that is so close to home that's going to allow the British fans of Olympic and Paralympic sport to to get up close and personal. I think how I want to improve my grade is by making sure that I know that me and my team have done everything possible to enable our sports to support the athletes to go to Paris and actually create an incredible raft of extraordinary sporting moments. So that's why my energy is going to be on leading our team over the next 18 months. Mm -hmm. Sally Monday, thank you very much indeed. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much, Sally. That was... That was Sally Monday, Chief Executive of UK Sport. Uh, next, we'll be hearing from Jade and Javan from the leaders team in our EDI Spotlight section. Um, a reminder that Cameron will be taking over from me in the deep dive later. Uh, but for now, let's have a look at what's coming up from New York, in New York from leaders. Force is a collection of social and content experiences, all designed to identify and unlock the areas where sport collides with entertainment, lifestyle and culture. We're right in the thick of putting together a major event experience in New York, which is set for Tuesday 23rd and Wednesday 24th of May at Chelsea Industrial in New York. If you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.force.se.com, that's for the number, or at force underscore events on Twitter and Instagram. And now onto Spotlight on EDI, where we shine a light on some key movements in the equity, diversity and inclusion space. Let's get straight into it. We'll start in the world of motorsports, where it's been reported that Craig Pollock, the former team principal of the British American Racing Team, is hatching plans to launch a new F1 team. Many hurdles to jump through before this gets anywhere near a reality, but Pollock is apparently seeking investment for a project dubbed Formula Equal, which would be the first team in the sport that's 50% men and 50% women, with that 50-50 gender split to apply across the entire organisation, from the cockpit to the boardroom. Formula Equal would mark a positive change in a sport that's traditionally struggled with gender diversity, with a 2016 survey conducted by the FIA finding that in European motorsport, women accounted for only 19% of volunteers, 16% of institutional employees and 6.5% of drivers. This is all in spite of the fact that an estimated 40% of Formula One fans are female. This is a pretty radical idea for Formula One, so what measures can be put in place to ensure it's executed successfully? Let's start by speaking to what it is. The ambition is to build opportunities and pathways for women to get to the very top level in some motorsports. Like every ambition, it needs to transcend to become and built around goals and objectives which are smart, that's specific, measurable, attainable, realistic and time-specific. There are positive signs that this has been considered as we understand that one arm of Formula Equal will be academy systems to have women trained to Formula One level both on and off the track. Fingers crossed it all comes together. Again, a way to go yet, but if Pollock's application is successful, Formula Equal could debut in 2026. And now, onto football. The Muslim community are currently observing Ramadan, a holy month in the Islamic calendar and a period of prayer, reflection, community and notably fasting. And for the first time, several English league fixtures have paused partway through the first half, just after sunset, so players who are fasting can break their fast in accordance with their customs. So what does this demonstrate about how the attitudes of football clubs are changing? 
Firstly, Ramadan Mubarak to the Muslim community. It's a step in the direction of moving from being an ally to an advocate, with action and intentions at the forefront. That's how you begin to transform and create change. What it does in actuality is create education points for fans, teammates and all stakeholders playing a role in the delivery of a match day, your sponsors, broadcasters, commentary, which creates a point of understanding, develops empathy and moves from just belonging to being embraced. Of course, Islam as a religion is over a thousand years old and is the second biggest world religion with an estimated over 1.9 billion belonging to it. And yet, British football is only just acknowledging it, which has some questioning, are things changing fast enough? Some are saying that the answer is ultimately no, but what we are seeing is environments and frameworks being put in place which are receptive to change as we now move to the next stage of this ongoing journey. And speaking of ongoing journeys, we'll now touch on another development in an ever-ongoing debate in sport, the trans debate. World Athletics have banned transgender women from competing in female world-ranking events. The president of the governing body, Lord Sebastian Coe, has stated that trans athletes who have gone through male puberty would not be permitted to compete. Coe said that decisions are always difficult when they involve conflicting needs and rights between different groups, but that the decision was guided by the overarching principle, which is to protect the female category. He did, however, also state that the ban may not be forever and that the council have agreed to set up a working group for 12 months to further consider the issue of transgender inclusion. As we said earlier, this is an ongoing conversation. So where might it go moving forward and how can the industry gain a better understanding of trans athletes? We need to move towards mutual understanding being established. And by that, I mean World of Flakes reaching out to the trans community to gather insight, which has no strings attached, because right now it all appears somewhat transactional. And today, the common approach has led to more confusion. What the industry can currently do is something which I think is already in motion, and that's working groups with all stakeholders at the table, your council members, athletes, transgender athletes, sports scientists, and member federations. Research, of course, is absolutely key in that regard, and this is something that the Rugby Football Union have found as well. And last, but certainly not least, Nike releases their biggest ever Federation capsule collection, and it's in celebration of the Women's World Cup. This follows a large investment by the sportswear giant into extensive women-specific research to develop an understanding of the needs of female footballers. Following this, we're seeing a mass rollout in Nike's leak protection innovation in pro shorts to ease the concerns of menstruating athletes, and a revamp in its sports bra offering to help provide a comfortable style and support level. Nike also worked with each federation in developing these new kit designs to reflect each nation's culture. Nike making great moves here for sports apparel and other organisations should be taking note. Other sportswear creators quite simply need to be prepared to sweat and put in the work, literally. What Nike have demonstrated here is that you can't have a monolithic approach in how you address women's football and women's sport altogether. By just from replicating what you do across your men's portfolio, we'll see you come across as tone deaf, disengaged and commercially underperform. It is crucial that they keep moving forward and that, as we say, the marathon continues. And that brings us to the end of our monthly roundup of the goings-on in the EDI space. Coming up, a deep dive into the lessons to be learned from women's sport in the face of uncertainty. But first, a look at the latest deadline for the Leader Sports Awards. The Leader Sports Awards are returning to the Natural History Museum in October, and the Community, Inclusion and Sustainability Awards categories are open. These categories look at the way sport can be used to positively influence societal change, and they uncover and award the organisations driving our industry forward through an array of projects and initiatives. Nominations are free to submit and entries will close on Friday 21st of April, 2359 British Summertime. Visit leadersinsport.com forward slash LSA to explore the categories and start your entry today. Next, it is no secret that economic uncertainty is dominating conversation and ultimately budgets in the current climate with all industries preparing to tighten belts. And hello, Cam. And, and welcome back to me. Um, and where better to look for the secrets on acting efficiently, uh, capitalising on innovation and navigating uncertainty than the world of women's sport, a sector that has not only survived but thrived in recent years despite less funding than the men's side in many cases. Joining us in the studio to give her take on the matter is the head of women's sport at Sky Sports, Joe Osborne, whose work in recent years has been key in establishing Sky Sports as the UK's largest broadcaster of women's sport. 
and Beth Barrett-Wilds, Director of Women's Professional Game at the England and Wales Cricket Board, who oversaw the launch and establishment of the first two editions of The 100, heading up the women's competition. <laughs> Beth, Joe, it's a pleasure to have you both with us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, good to be here. <laughs> I want to jump straight in. Um, we're looking at the solutions with the economic headwinds uh, brewing. The conversation around kickstarting women's sport, it, it's often quite cyclical. The funding is needed to refine the product, to get more eyes on it, to get more attention. But then there are those that say more attention is needed initially to justify that, that greater funding. When you're speaking with partners, stakeholders, even people within your own organisations, what are you doing to sort of light the blue touch paper and start that cycle on your own? I'm going to start with you, Joe. <laughs> I think the good news for, for me is that there's no convincing to be done within my organisation. I think the knowledge of the value and the potential of women's sport is there. As you mentioned, we're the biggest investor of women's sport actually in Europe, we're investing billions over 30 years. So we're, we're already there. I think the exciting thing now is how can we grow those audiences? And I we can see them growing. We've seen them for WSL, see them globally. We've seen them you know, brilliantly with new competitions like the 100. And, and I don't know if anyone saw the numbers for the final four at the NCAA over in America. Have Nine, you got them in front of you? Cripsheet! <laughs> 9.9 9 million people watched that. So, you know, we've got global evidence of those audiences growing. And I think the exciting thing for us now is how do we capitalise on those big major events mm. and turn them into habit? And there's been research. Women's Trust have come up with some stuff recently, but actually... There's a huge calendar this year where we can really do that and some brilliant major events, US Open, Solheim Cup, 100 joint ashes, ashes to ashes. ashes, to ashes. So yeah, it's, um, it's an exciting time, but I think the convincing feels like it's stopping and actually the, the sort of innovation is continuing. I think just building on that as well, like the way that I've looked at it historically, it has been that kind of that purpose selling and almost having to position it as this this element of the game that people have to invest in because it's the right thing to do. And I think as Joe's talked about there, that mindset is shifting now. Like, you know, we're seeing the data coming through. I think um, it's good that Joe's got all her stats written down because I find it incredibly difficult actually to keep up with the number of case studies that are out there now, which really demonstrate this growing audience for, for women's sport and that, that real opportunity. So I think it's almost flipping that mindset from purpose into like the profit opportunity um, and it's almost yeah turning that kind of vicious into the virtuous cycle so fortunately it is becoming a, a slightly more straightforward sell but I think that whole sort of selling on emotion and really rationalizing on data which we're having in, in increasing amounts now is, is really important. Um, do keep those questions coming in on LinkedIn. There are a few that have come in for Sally Monday that I think are relevant for this conversation. So I am going to um, mix them in at some point. Warning. Um, <laughs> huh? Mix and match. A little bit of mix and match. Why not? Um, but first, congratulations are in order. You have both been promoted very recently. Right. Well yes. Yes. Congratulations. So I'm not sure which one of you is going to get the first round after after this, but it's certainly not going to happen. Let's talk about those roles. Joe, head of women's sport. What does that mean? Oh, what doesn't it mean? <laughs> I mean, I think, I think the important... You're the first one, right? I, I am the first one, but it's not a new... Obviously, it's not a new focus for us. And I, Sally, you know, spoke brilliantly earlier about the decades of work that's gone in and all these... We've got this incredibly huge number of people at Sky, talented teams who've worked across all of our different women's sports, and there are a lot of them for a long time. So I get the privilege of being able to work with them. But I think the shift for us is to say... We know, we see that opportunity. It's important for us to bring all those sports together and say, how can one learn from the other? What, what more can we do to dig into that exciting new audience that's coming through women's sport? Because there's, there's an existing audience, but there's this new audience coming through. How can we kind of find more stats, um, <laughs> insights and data and actually capitalise on that? And, and, and I think that's such a positive sign about our laser focus on it that yeah. we're actually adding more resource to something you talked about the economic uncertainty yeah. more resource to, to women's sport at a time like this but it's really important to say that all the hard work goes on within the content teams and, and has done for a long time yeah and uh, uh, director <laughs> killing me off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Beth, director uh, of the women's professional um game was that a, a role that was sort of built for you as well? Uh, yeah, so also a new role. Yeah. Um, so it's actually an expansion of what I was doing previously, which was head of the 100 women's competition. Um, so it's sort of broadening out that scope. So yeah. I've got the entirety of uh, professional women's cricket in this country under my remit now, which is incredibly exciting. Yeah. And I think it's actually just um, demonstrating how far the women's game has come so quickly, actually. I think in the last four or five years, we've gone from having no um, professional domestic contracts, uh, female 
domestic contracts in this country um, through to having, I think we have over 100 now um, in our domestic game in addition to our England women's central contracts. So it's a really rapidly growing space. And I guess my remit within it is to bring all of the strands together. So there's that um, bit around sort of really driving the profile and driving that audience, which Joe's touched on there and making sure that we're sort of, yeah, growing the number of fans that we've got coming into the sport, but also looking at how we professionalise on the field and making sure that the quality of the products and the performance element um, go side by side of that. Because I think that is so important. You know, if we are trying to grow this audience, which then will help us ultimately to commercialise women's sport, we need to make sure that the quality of the product is as strong as possible. So it's how do we ensure uh, that the professionalisation basically is both on and off the field. Mm -hmm. I think a part of the conversation that always comes up when we look at women's sport is how much, if at all, should it follow the template of the men's side of the games mm. or, or other men's sports? How, you know, should it do things completely differently? Should it take some parts and, and you know, skew others? Um, I, I want to you know, address this to both of you with different folks, but starting with you, Joe, in terms of developing a strategy for women's sport coverage, where do you sit on that? Is it, you know, following a, a pretty similar path to the coverage of those same sports on the men's side? Wildly different or a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B? I, I like to approach it without even looking at column A. <laughs> I, think, I think we've got a massive opportunity with women's sports to, to carve our own path, to innovate, mm. to, to look at what... If you started any sport now, would it look like it did, has grown into? And actually, we've got this incredible opportunity with these, some quite young, some a bit older, growing sports. So actually, I think, forget column A, let's talk about what we can do for this audience. And we saw, we see a different audience coming to the Euros. We see a different audience coming to the 100. We see, we've got a lot of opportunities to answer the questions those audience wants. And we know that fans of women's sport have evolved to be slightly different. So they are digital savvy. They are purpose-driven. They are, they have a high intention to buy. We've got all this information about them that we're starting to build, which means that we can build uh, products for them that, that they want to watch. But essentially, at the end of the day, the crossover has to be the same in that it's entertaining, competitive, high-quality sport that people are going to watch. You are adding into their sporting lives often or their, their viewing lives. So we have to provide them something that's going to keep their attention. And Beth, taking it mm. to you, you've just come back from India, uh, yes. looking at the, the WPL, the first season. Mm. Um, firstly, how was it? Um, secondly, how do you see that affecting women's cricket? And, and thirdly, is that sort of a fact-finding mission for you, or is it the reverse? Are you the one there to you know, dole out a little bit of learning? <laughs> um, probably a bit of all three. So look, yeah, I was in India for the inaugural Women's Premier League, um, which is the new T20 franchise competition that the BCCI have just launched, um, in the same sort of light, I suppose, as the Indian Premier League, the incredibly successful men's Indian Premier League. Um, and it was incredible. Um, I think it's, you know, what they have pulled together um, in a relatively short space of time. I think it's one of those things that's kind of been a long time in the making, but they've pulled the actual delivery of the competition uh, in a, a few, matter of a few months, actually. Um, what they have delivered uh, was amazing. I think, you know, they were getting between ten and 15,000 um, passionate fans watching all of those matches. Um, I think the level of investment coming into that competition is a game changer. So in terms of what it will do for the impact on um, women's cricket globally and actually women's sport globally, um, I think it's, it's a real moment, actually. So we've seen that the media rights sold for roughly about £100 million, which works out about a million, million pounds a game um, in the first uh, few years of that competition. And the teams themselves sold for, I think, about £100 million as well. So enormous sums of money being pumped into that competition. And I think it's just a real demonstration, actually, going back to that first question in terms of how we position women's sport now, is that is a really good example of, like, the market is there. You know, the BCCI, they're not going to launch something like that unless they know that they're going to make some money out of it. Um, so I think it's, it's a real game changer in that sense. And also for the players themselves, you know, they've been able to earn a lot of money um, to play in that competition. So Nat Siverbrunt, um, one of our, our players here in England, I think she went for £320,000 in the auction, which I think overnight pretty much made her the best paid female sports team sports player in the country. So look, it's going to have a massive impact on women's cricket. Um, I've been looking at it through the 100 lens and what impact it might have on us. And I think overall, like, it's going to be incredibly positive. I think it's going to grow the market. I think it's going to grow the number of global eyeballs that we have on women's cricket. It's going to normalise um, perceptions around women's cricket, which is, is positive for everybody. And I think the exciting thing as well is it's really going to help to broaden that talent base. I think going back to sort of where we are in our professional journey right now, like it's um, it's historically been, you know, a few nations playing and, and sort of, yeah, not necessarily having the depth of talent that you see in the men's game. Whereas I think now that we'll have competitions like the WPL, like the 100, like the Women's Big Bash League in Australia, 
more and more earning opportunities for female players to, to make a real proper career um, playing cricket. So I think it's a real positive. And, you know, I think in terms of looking at other sports, maybe it gives us a little bit of an advantage right now. If you're a talented, sporty uh, 10 or 11 year olds like I was that played um, different sports, hopefully they'll be looking up and being like, well, do you know what? Cricket's mm. where it's at because mm. I can make some good dollars there. Mm. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you follow Sally Monday, actually, because she was talking about you earlier <laughs> off uh, and um, sort of cursing that you can be so talented talented at more than, you know, both <laughs> hockey and cricket yeah. in, in your case. Yeah, born um, in the wrong generation though, this maybe, is it. Yeah, yeah. wish yeah. I was a, a 10 year old now, I'd have yeah. all the options. Um, we've got questions flying in and do keep them coming because we are going to mix some in and I'm going to um, bring a couple in now. One of them is from David Kushnan, our content director out in Monaco for the tennis actually at the moment, but he can't keep himself away from <laughs> leaders' content and quite right. And then we'll be coming to Dawn Barnable, a podcast host in the UAE, uh, runs a lovely podcast on women's sport. Um, but David asks, uh, trying to stir the pot a, a bit, I think, um, to what extent do you think women's sport needs a greater degree of controversy to drive even more conversation and mm. interest. Joe, oh. on the media side, what do you think? Interesting question. I think, I don't know if it's about controversy, I think there's often something levelled at women's sport that it's too nice. Too nice, yeah. mm. too nice, and I just, I don't really know what to make of that criticism. I think, I think it's important that we treat women's sport seriously, so when we talk about it and we analyse it, we are serious about that analysis and we'll say when we think someone's had a bad game we'll say when we think someone's played a blinder but mm. uh, so I think that's important to to generate some some debate but um I, I don't think it needs more controversy I, mm. I think people are drawn to great action and great drama whether that drama's on the pitch or off the pitch it mm. doesn't really matter I just think it's really important that we don't dumb down by talking about you know always talking about the the sort of lifestyle elements or anything else there's some great sport being played all over the world by women so I think that should be enough of a, a draw I don't think it needs more yeah I think, think? I think it's really important the quality of the the sport that's actually on the field that has to be front and center of everything we're doing albeit when we talk about controversial moments there was a moment at Lords last summer and um, when England women were playing India um, in the final ODI of that series. And there was the Dipti Sharma, um, mm -hmm. Charlie Dean, Mankad in, uh, incident, mm -hmm. um, which I won't go into the details of exactly what that means, but um, it's a, it's a out, of the, out of the spirit of the game, shall we say, mode of dismissal. And yeah. that did draw like a lot of interest. Sure. And um, I must admit, I did wake up the next morning and I was just scrolling through all of my feeds and I was like, well, this is amazing coverage. <laughs> so look, I don't think it's something that we should be honing in on trying to create those moments. But when they do happen, of course, I think, it's, it's a good example, actually, of how people are interested. Like, so, um, yeah, I don't think we should be sort of pulling them out, but when they happen... You don't necessarily out. need to manufacture it, do you? No. But a little bit no. of animus here, a little bit of disagreement yeah. uh, in the public doesn't go amiss. And I think the point about it just not being too nice is, is the key one, like yeah. taking it seriously, you know, and I think what's brilliant about women's sport and something actually that we need to and something I'm, I'm mindful of in my new role that we want to hold on to is that authenticity. Yeah. So we talk a lot about how female athletes and um, their ability to connect with fans and how important that is and we must hold on to that moving forwards um, as hopefully, yeah, audiences grow and, and sort of the money in the game um, increases um, maintaining that. So, um, yeah, I think kind of that nice edge, maybe we can lose some of that, but um, keep that authenticity point. You can be competitive and family friendly at exactly. the same time. Exactly that, yeah. Um, I'm going to come to the question from Dawn Barnable now, and she asks, she says it's a question for Joe, but I think actually it'd be good to um, give you both <laughs> a stab at this. Um, and that is, why haven't other major media outlets followed suit, followed Sky suit, in relation to coverage of women's sport? A quick scan of major news outlets, sports pages, online and coverage of women's sport continues to fall short. Do you, is that something that you notice at Sky? Well, we're very lucky in that there's lots of great people in the industry doing lots of great research in the minute and the Women's Sport Trust do some some regular visibility research. There are lots of others that do brilliant research. That's the one that kind of springs to mind just because they did a, an updated one recently and they, they track mm -hmm. how much everyone's talking about it. I think it's a really hard thing to measure because it's all about percentages, right? So if there's something else happening, it will drop in percentage to something else. But I, I think what we're starting to talk about on top of that point of... Uh, how much we're talking about women's sport is how much are we cutting through? It's exactly mm. back to your point on those moments, those viral moments, those controversial moments, is actually how are you 
pushing into the consciousness of, of people wider than the sport bubble in which we probably operate most of the time. And actually those moments can be really helpful. And I think that's going to be key is how do we push out into wider culture? How many household names can we make from our women's sports? You know, we have an important role to play in that. We take that as a responsibility of building up those names and telling those stories. And I think, I think that's a crucial part of it. The other thing I think I'd love to see more of across the industry, and it's something we're actively working on is having more strong female voices telling those stories. Mm. And it's not just women in women's sport. There's lots of men's, male fans of women's sport and there's lots of men doing amazing work within women's sport. But I also think across the board in all sports, it would be lovely to see more female voices, you know, being given the opportunity to tell those stories. I think, I think that'll make a big mm. difference. Definitely. And I think hopefully that will change, right? With yeah. culturally with sort of yeah, women's sport um, on the uh, on the rise um, in terms of yeah, societal shift with that and having um, yeah, more women and girls and girls coming through and believing that from my perspective, cricket is a sport for them, we'll we'll get those voices coming through. Yeah. Beth, sticking with you, we're two seasons into the hundred. Yes. Uh, two seasons under our belt, and you've come today with some, some great hundred merch. Great merch. Yeah. <laughs> the third is soon upon us. Yeah. What has been the biggest learning over the past five years? And what change do you want to see moving forwards into that third edition? Uh, yeah, so look, I think there's been loads of learnings um, across the competition. I think from my perspective as head of the 100 women's competition previously, I think there's probably four key things. Um, I think the first one was around that audience and the fact that, you know, the 100 has got this ability to turbocharge the audience for women's game at pace and scale. Um, and that if you do present it on a big stage and you market it and you give it that high profile visibility, people will turn up and watch it. So I think we had over 500,000 people coming through to watch women's matches in the first two years. Uh, combined, huge broadcast reach, which Joe's probably got... Um, written down on one of her pieces of paper here. That's cool. Um, <laughs> I think it's well into the, the multiple millions um, tuning in on broadcast. So I think there's that point around the audience and that it will be a catalyst for that audience. Uh, second one around performance, that it will help to drive performance standards. Um, so I think there was a bit of a learning there around the quality of, of women's cricket. I think, um, I'll be honest, I was a little bit nervous going into year one, actually, you know, women's cricket being very sort of early in its sort of professional maturity and was it ready to be thrust onto this big stage and look I think it, it absolutely thrived I think it's made breakout stars of the likes of Alice Capsey um, and Izzy Wong who are now tearing it up in competitions like the Women's Premier League and, and hopefully they'll have a brilliant Ashes summer this year so um, that performance part and um, participation so it's a really key one for me actually something close to my heart that we'll see it act as a participation catalyst so that normalisation of women and men playing on the same platform and sort of yeah being able for small girls Girls, little girls being able to aspire to have the same dreams as their brother. I think that's really important. Um, and then finally, that perception shift. And I think that's a, a really key learning, actually. And, and some of the data that we're seeing is the 100 is driving a shift in people's perceptions of what cricket is and who it's for. And I think that's a phrase that I use quite a lot, actually, in terms of the 100 almost giving us this amazing second chance to make a brilliant first impression about, about the sport. So they're probably the four key ones. Um, in terms of um, change moving forwards, look, I think we are only two years in. I think it's, it's easy to forget that it's still, um, you know, we're still bedding it in, really. We're still learning as we go. So um, I don't think we're looking to make any huge fundamental changes in the foreseeable future. I think we've got a model in the, the double headers. So those match days with the men and women playing on the same day that works and that's really, really positive. Um, but I think from my perspective, you know, a long term goal would be to maybe separate, separate those two competitions out and sort of really enable the women's comp in particular to realise that standalone value. So that's something that's maybe on the horizon, but um, yeah, not in the next couple of years, I don't think. I think we've got time for a couple more, and I just want to make sure that some of these fantastic questions mm. that we're getting through on LinkedIn are aired. First of all, um, a contribution from Matt Cutler, former Two Circles man and PR and storytelling specialist, mm. um, who's sort of responding to that <laughs> question that you answered earlier, Joe. He, he says, anecdotally, I think the media in the UK has actually done a good job at upping coverage of women's sport. Um, the BBC, The Athletic and The Telegraph especially that spring to mind, plus Sky. Another question on the, the broadcast and media side of things. Um, Chris Hurst, um, who works closely with the Women's Sports Trust, asks, how will broadcast and digital coverage evolve, do you both think, in the next decade to better serve women and girls who are new to sport? Who wants want to, to kick off first, Joe? Oh, hi, Chris. Thanks for having <laughs> question. I shouldn't have been so nice about the Women's Sport Trust. Um, I, think, I think modern broadcasters have to be very, have to approach things very differently than we used to. So we don't, you know, we don't just talk about linear anymore. We're talking about on-platform, off-platform. We're talking about, you know, how are we reaching our core audiences on our platforms, but also 
how are we reaching out to find fans where they are or on other platforms? And I think that's that's a real shift. And I think that's going to be really important to bring people into the sporting ecosystem. So that's definitely going to be part of it. I think there's probably also going to be an opportunity to engage younger people with new competitions, with thinking differently about how we how our coverage appeals to everyone, how we innovate within our coverage. I think, you know, we talk a lot about finding fans where they are, but actually if you create an inclusive product that's appealing to everyone, mm. then you're already doing half of that job. So I think, yeah, I think that's going to be key to it. Mm-hmm. What do you reckon, Beth? Um, yeah, look, I mean, echo a lot of what Joe said there. I think there's lots of exciting new digital platforms, aren't there? I know um, DAZN are making big moves um, around women's football and Champions League. Sorry to throw that one in, Joe, non-Sky non Sports. Um, so I think that's important. I think I read an, an interesting piece recently about um, Burnley and um, the women's team there and the partnership that they have with TikTok. I think they actually stream um, a lot of their games live through TikTok. So that is an example, I suppose, of taking the sport to where um, younger audiences sort of play and spend a lot of their time. Um, and I think they've had around a, a million or something live views on that channel there. So I think that's a really good example of sort of, yeah, um, how a, a brand um, can come and really help to amplify what's going on in that space. Can I say also, sorry, really quickly, I also think partnerships are, are really important in mm. that because actually that's something we've seen a massive shift on, not just between governing bodies and, and, and broadcasters, but actually between broadcasters and the thought you're reaching a whole new audience. You know, obviously it's, we've done it with the WSL, mm. also with the 100, that you're actually reaching out to a whole new audience via quite, this is quite a big shift, I think, to see us all as partners and, and aggregate this content together so everyone can get a little bit of everything. Time for one more question before we leave. Uh, I want to have a bit of a look forward. Um, we've obviously had a lot of big landmark moments uh, in the recent recent years, the 100 being one. Um, Sally Monday mentioned the Lionesses win. In your expert opinion, what is the big moment on the horizon to keep an eye out for? What is the big moment <laughs> for women's sport Coming up next, I'll start with you, Beth. Well, I'm going to be very biased. Um, so I think the Ashes, the women's Ashes this summer. Um, so I think it's an enormous opportunity for us, actually. And I think it's a, a real outcome of um, the growth that we've seen over the last couple of years, um, in particular sort of that audience growth driven through the hundreds. Um, we've got the women's Ashes this summer on home turf, um, alongside the men's Ashes. We've got a brilliant, innovative campaign out there, Ashes to Ashes. What's better than an Ashes 2? Very clever. David um, uh, Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah. But that's all about how we can... Um, yeah, how we can almost like use some of the scale perhaps from the men's game and sort of catapult the women's game into that. But we've got three matches being played in a big stadium there through the IT20s um, at Lords, Edgbaston and Oval. Ambitions to sell those out. Um, so that's certainly the one that um, I would Im- implore uh, listeners to, to look out for this summer. I'll give you that. That's going to be massive. <laughs> also for us, like the Solheim and the Ryder being back to back, exactly in terms of that capitalising that big audience. I can't pretend I'm not very excited about the US Open tennis returning to Sky. So for us... <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be big, and I think tennis is a huge, is it is in a really interesting place at the minute where they're growing new stars across the men's and the women's game. So actually, I think there's a massive opportunity to create some new superstars through tennis. The other thing, obviously, is building on the uh, the success of the Euros with the FIFA Women's World, World Cup, Cup and how that comes I'm back to the, the WSL. World Cup as well. Yeah, yeah, the Ashes and the World Cup. Lots of dates for the calendar. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Busy summer. <laughs> um, that is all we've got time for, I'm afraid. But Joe and Beth, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, thank you to Sally Monday as well. And thank you all for being with us and for firing those questions in today. But that's it for Leaders Live. We'll see you next month on May 11th for our season finale, a uh, behind the scenes look at the studios with IMG's own Barney Francis. We'll see you then, and it's bye for now.